Welcome back to another episode of Establishing Shot. I am Ted Barron, Executive Director of the DeBartolo Performing Arts Center. We are here in the Browning Cinema, and we are enjoying the lovely air conditioning in this hot Indiana summer. Joining me, as always, is my esteemed colleague, Ricky Herbst, Cinema Program Director. Hi, Dr. Barron. Hello. <laughs> I uh, wanted to do the what is the what is uh, what is the proper title for a, a lawyer? Is it Esquire? Mister, just Mister Herbst. <laughs> yeah, Attorney hey, Ricky. Herbst. Uh, Attorney I'm getting, Herbst. I'm getting divorced. You got some ideas? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I get called. That's right. Um, Attorney Herbst, who was not appointed to the Supreme Court, despite our president's uh, fondness for Ivy League educated uh, lawyers. Yeah, my resume got stuck on LinkedIn. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> oh well. He's, but I'm glad you're still here. And here with us again. <laughs> I don't know why I got really high on that one. It was just this level of enthusiasm that I haven't had in a while. But um, we're it, it, embracing our, our new uh, guest uh, reviewer format. And we've wel- we're welcoming once again Paulette Curtis. Paulette Curtis is the faculty director of the Office of Pre-College Programs, which runs um, our Summer Scholar Series here at Notre Dame, uh, which brings students from all over the country to, to campus to study uh, during the summer months. Um, she's also the director of the Ambrose Scholars Initiative and a concurrent faculty member in anthropology and a really cool person to talk to movies about. That's awesome introduction. I is love that. that. Nice? I should just Even though I ended around. on a preposition? Is that okay? Yeah, right. That's really okay. It's okay. All right. Well, welcome, Paulette. Thank you, Glad Ted you're... and Ricky. I really love being here. Welcome. So as part of, uh, as, as our loyal listeners know, we like to uh, include within our podcast our top three, our trademarked, top three trademark pending. Uh, pending, probably, right? Pending. Now, Once that, again, now <laughs> that we're going to get Kevin on the bench, let's send that up. <laughs> right. Yeah, like, he's, hey, pro-business. he's pro-business. So he's pro-business. I think he'll give it to us. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, all right. So we've got our top three for the month, and we've asked Paulette to contribute to our top three. So it's not just Ricky and I going back and forth and... And Though it's really amusing, I got to tell you, I listen to these podcasts and I'm impressed by the level of like joie de vivre and like natural. Paulette, we already everything. asked you to be on the show. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I'd lay it on a little bit more. Well, we like Maybe talking about movies. Back. And if you haven't noticed, we like to relate our movies to our. It's 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 very um it's very therapeutic. We we kind of work through our own. Family histories, and <laughs> traumas, and everything. <laughs> you know, I, that's why we come out of this feeling much lighter. It's like you know, we've just had breakthroughs. So, um, all right. So the top three for this month, um, and I forget why we settled on this, but we we oh because we were talking about well, Paulette's a big sci-fi person. Uh, she knows a lot about uh, science fiction film and and as well as reading a lot of science Some. fiction. So we started off saying, "Oh, let's do let's let's do something about science fiction and adaptation," and then we just kind of settled on talking about adaptation with the idea that some science fiction would maybe work its way it in. Kind of did. Maybe I couldn't get away from it. <laughs> I managed to sidestep it. <laughs> well, you get the horror. That's, that's Ricky early. brings in the horror. Ricky early. brings the horror. Oh, what do I? I don't know what I bring. I just bring. I usually bring, I always there's always like music in my house. Maybe that's my thing. Yeah, like I'm big because it's the I watch too many music videos. Um, so anyway, so we're gonna we're gonna run through our um, top three uh, film adaptations, top, top three films that we think are interesting because of the process of adaptation, or just think are interesting adaptations. Paulette, 
Let us turn to you. Oh, I get to be first. That's really unfair. Of course. As the guest. So, you know, this is, again, new for me. I'm just going to lay it out. Yeah. Um, I loved having the opportunity to do this, and you all brought it up a notch because then I had to think about, you know, what we call the process of adaptation, which is really complex. And after I started thinking about what I was going to choose, which I realized didn't have to be, we didn't say it was like it had to be the very best ever created films from something, but just something that was more interesting or better in some way as an adaptation, as a film. Mm-hmm. So this is really hard because when you start thinking about it, many, many film stories, whether it's the Hollywood or the independent films or or internationals, whatever, start out as other things. Mm-hmm. And I, I had to really take myself back and go, maybe most of the things that are produced aren't, quote, unquote, truly original stories that are just written for the screen. And so there's always right. this process of thinking through. So anyway, but having said that, that sounds like a very fancy thing I did, but I actually ended up settling on things that are that are fairly sort of mainstreamy. Mm-hmm. I'm going to start with where I wanted to start, which yep. I got a lot of grief about, which was Dune. It's not on my top three. I had to take it off because yeah. people gave me so much grief about it. I lived <laughs> in that world and the soundtrack growing up, if you want to know, as a high school student, I even thought, had to think about my grandmother, mm-hmm. God rest her soul, um, telling me it was just too dark, the soundtrack. What was I doing listening to all of this and all of this stuff? So, I mean, Dune, I would admit maybe it wasn't the most phenomenal adaptation of the book, but it is a phenomenal cinematic Which cut of product. Dune, the shortcut or the long cut? <laughs> is there such a difference? I mean, the long cut, obviously. Um, Kyle MacLachlan, yeah. Max von Sydow, yep. Toto Score. Anyway, so that didn't make it. Yeah. I also. And it's all going to get fixed by Denis Villeneuve, right? I just, <laughs> I can't go there. We're, we'll that's leave another that alone. podcast. We'll leave that alone. We'll I can't believe Blade, Blade Runner was also originally on my list. Yeah, yeah. And I just can't, I can't talk about how painful it was to watch the last one. I like Ryan Gosling and I love Harrison Ford. Mm-hmm. Didn't work, but it's so a good Blade plane movie, by it. the way. I What's watched that? I watched it on a plane recently, and it's a good plane movie because it's just you can don't just even kind of give it the credit that it doesn't deserve that. It's a well done film that goes nowhere. Yeah, that's kind of my feeling. But okay. so Blade Runner didn't make short. it. <laughs> That's why it's a good plane film. movie. It just kind of just kind of goes on. I love Harry. And in that in that cinematography, <laughs> when you look at it through a a crappy uh, TV monitor on a plane. But come on, if you if Harrison sparkles. Ford doesn't really know, doesn't look like he knows what he's doing in the film, it's yeah. probably not that good a movie. Well, so that's kind of how he is in everything. I would disagree with you, but um, and then finally, given that we that you all the last podcast talked about children's animated films, I almost put The Snowman on my mm. list because The Snowman was just literally a picture book mm-hmm. um, by a British author, whose name I can't remember now. It was adapted into this very right. beautiful, um, but it's not also appropriate for summer because it's about a snowman. And I know Ricky has like some snide comment about The Snowman. No, I, I, I can no feel it. No, I have no snide comment. I thought when you said I want to do The Snowman, you meant that Michael Fassbender. That's what I, I, I thought the exact same thing because movie, we were talking about Michael Fassbender. We were right. talking about Alien. I, just, that's what, I thought the exact same thing. When and that's why I, I knew you were going to do watch, that. <laughs> I will watch almost anything. I I could tell that wasn't going to be. So anyway, no, but thank you for, that could have also worked potentially. So there is an animated story. There's an animated version of the picture book. It is gorgeous That's, and sweeping okay. and put magical. It your, put it on your uh, Ma- magical kids? Sunday list. Sunday, or Sunday and kids because I love the I love snowman Christmas in the summer. Movie. It is it is a magical 
it's a magical film. So it yeah. almost made my, but then it didn't fit with the others. So this okay. is my top three. All right. So what? So where are you starting? Planet of the Apes from nineteen sixty eight. You're horrible. Planet of the Apes. I mean, I, I when I teach science fiction, I I teach it because it's an unbelievably pregnant story that had multiple reference um, that I think arguably really did take the sort of original novella by Pierre Boulle or actual novel and expand it in ways that Boulle would never have seen. So it was a satire. Um, and actually, I didn't know this until I read this a while ago, that Jacobs, the producer, Alfred Jacobs, um, actually bought the rights to it before it was published. So he knew that it had this kind of cachet, that it was potentially going to be a really great story, and then gave it to Rod Serling um, and then rejected most of Rod Serling's script and then gave it um, to Michael Wilson, who finished it and really wrote it. But Rod Serling's um, touches being the most important one at the end, I mean, Mm -hmm. that whole line of the story was really Rod Serling's. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I, makes sense. And I don't know if we were supposed to do spoilers because I think everybody, most people listening mm-hmm. to this probably have seen it. So I'm not going to spoil okay. it. We could, we, warning, spoiler turn, spoiler turn alert. Down, turn down the dial. Turn down the dial for the next minute Well, we all know so. Charlton Heston, this great icon, who is also really awesome in the film because, as people would argue, he was, you know, Moses, etc. And yeah, so yeah. to see him brought literally to his knees yeah. at the site of them having traveled this whole world as astronauts and mm-hmm. they have they meet this planet they you know these apes and gorillas and chimpanzees on this planet who take it over and talk and humans are are mute and blah 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 right. blah in the end he figures out sees the statue of liberty that yeah we did this to ourselves and so the sort of nuclear holocaust theme was totally Rod Serling's idea mm-hmm. brilliant and the film itself i think i know people would disagree with me the film, even with some of the things that make it look a little dated, is really timeless. Like, mm-hmm. I've watched it a million times on the big screen. Yeah. And again, like Rocky, it has this very patient... It's Yeah, it's, it's, it takes a while it. to get it going. And that's while. Yeah, and, and to watch it... I think I tried to watch it with my son about three or four years ago, and he lost interest because it just takes a while for them... It does. It takes a while for them to get there. Right. And then for you to understand what's happening in the spaceship. Which and, they love. I mean, they really, right. really exploit that. Right. And then, of course... One of the best the the end obviously is a very important impactful moment. One of my favorite scenes is when he kisses Zira. Mm-hmm. I have a picture of that. One of my TAs from a class long time ago back at a fair Harvard gave it to me and said, "Look, makes them look like they're embracing and mm-hmm. like it's like this very passionate thing." That's a great scene. But the very greatest scene is like a quarter of the way through the movie when they come up. They they they've landed on this planet. They have no idea what's happening. It's lush. They can breathe. You know, they're tra- time travelers, etc. Mm-hmm. And they come across. The gorilla on a horse. It's amazing. Yeah. And that scene still, the chills of it are still amazing. So to me, that's beautiful. It's just a beautiful, it's a beautiful film. And Charlton Heston, whatever NRA, bowling for Columbine, connections, whatever, Mm -hmm. um, he was in his heyday. And it's it's really great to see him in a film. It's um it's funny to think about because I I think about growing up with it and thinking about it more in terms of like how it had become kind of pop culturized yes. because there was the animated series oh, and there was there was the TV series it got weird it got that weird just, you know they i remember my brother was really into it i thought right. he, my brother was weird because he was in my brother had this weird fascination with with apes and monkeys right and Right. That was like his thing. That was his thing. That was his well, thing. Well, and think so. about it. I mean, it was one of the first it was probably the first Hollywood film 
to be serialized yeah. and to start which what we call kind of a binge phenomenon. Right. So animated series, multiple movies, lots of tie-in, right. everything. Everything. Yeah. So, you know, but the first film is just a lot of so products. Iconic. I think we had some total products. I think we stuff. had some toys. I can't tons, remember what they tons, were. Tons. It must have been something. So I don't know. It's exciting well, to me to still think and about the reason, it. And the reason I shouted shocking as you said that was because when I first met you, this was like one of the first things I think we were talking don't about. I remember so. that. <laughs> I just can't get it off the brain. Yeah. Well, it was, and it was also, it was around the time of the, the first of the new trilogy. That's right. Kind of coming out. So we were, right. which, you know, had, at that point, it looked like it was going to be a mess. I actually like the the first film in the new trilogy. I've, I've rewatched it a couple of times. The, you know what's funny about it with Mark Wahlberg? No, 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 not that. Ugh, you mean God. the Ugh. latest one? I'm talking about Franco. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, the last. Forget Wahlberg. The second no, one is brilliant. The first one is okay. The third one first one's what it was. The first one's like, it's crackling. Yeah. It's just kind of, they, they did a good script. I think we should have like a whole, I hear I'm inviting myself back. We should have a whole other podcast about reserializations. Yeah. Um, that's because idea. that's, you know, that's a tough one. Cause I, I have, mm. I'm struggling with, I'm writing a little piece on Star Wars now and why I have issues with it. And, Planet of the Apes fits in there. I have lots of issues with it. So good. that's for me. And then, you know, there are lots of other things to talk about, like the race question and mm-hmm. other kinds of things it touches on. Great film. Um, should I move to my second one? Or, no, we'll, or we'll go to Ricky. We're going awesome. to do, we're going to do, we're going to take turns. Awesome. Love that's, it. Because that's, we live in that kind of Real awesome. quick though, why no Tim Burton, like, is, we just write off Tim Burton? Like, so yes. What's the Bur- problem with Ironically, the Tim Burton Planet of the Apes is more like the Bull story. Is it? Right. Okay. But it doesn't work because you can't forget the first serial. And Mark Wahlberg actually has some charm and some redeeming graces, like the last <sighs> film I saw him in, which I know we will just put on the side. It actually works in that. It's limited role. But um, Tim Burton sometimes works for me and sometimes doesn't. I don't... Tongue-in-cheek only goes so far with me with something I care that deeply about. And I felt like most of the film... it There were things that looked great, like the gorillas in sequence and like mm-hmm. the battle scenes were kind of awesome, but that was kind of the story itself just didn't need to happen. Like it just didn't need to happen. Like why? Because Tim Burton wanted to do a film. Well, he, he was a, fan. a lot of money. I mean, clearly he's a fan. And right. He just, he, at that point, he can do what he wants. So he did it. And CGI was at a certain point. Yeah, it where just was getting CGI is just getting ridiculous. So, so yeah. yeah. Wahlberg. There's one word for you. Wahlberg. <laughs> It's the Massachusetts connection. It's like too much Boston. (laughs) Apes, how are (laughs) you? What's going on? (laughs) All right, sorry. I'm not as good as Andy Samberg. Um, All right, Ricky, what's number one on your list? Um, So I'm going to start with a film called Rear Window. (laughs) Rear Window? I've never heard of that. What is that? Um, Was that at the Munich Film Fest? <laughs> yeah, it's right there. It's like it's like Planet of the Apes. I haven't been seen that often. <laughs> uh, but Rear Window is based off a short story from 1942 called "It Had to Be Murder" by uh, Cornell Woolrich, um, who is a very interesting, I would say, fascinating mid-century pulp writer. Um, actually. Uh, I wrote down the first couple of lines. I'm going to quote them of the short story because I like them a lot. Um, so the, the I in this, the first person, would be uh, Jimmy Stewart. Um, so I didn't know their names. I'd never heard their voices. I didn't even know them by sight. Strictly speaking, for their faces were too small to fill in with identifiable features at that distance. Yet I could have constructed a timetable of their comings and goings, their daily habits and activities, 
They were the rear window dwellers around me. That's where you get the title. Lovely. Mm-hmm. Hitchcock. Lovely. Um, so uh, people claim that Woolrich himself had a very dark and menacing personality, uh, which might be borne out by the fact that um, the titles of his first six books, I think, all had the word black in them. <laughs> <laughs> so he's just he's he's kind of a Poe figure hmm. uh, that's coming through wow. uh, the mid-century. But the short story is interesting in the fact that the Jimmy Stewart character um, in the wheelchair is used as part of the Sixth Sense ending, uh, twist ending. So the wheelchair he's in there by choice. Mm-hmm. He's not in there actually because he had an hurt. accident. Yeah. Um, also, there's no Grace Kelly or Thelma Ritter. Uh, they're not in the apartment along mm-hmm. with them. Uh, so if you've seen Rear Window, you can imagine how much creepier it is for Jimmy Stewart just to be there um, staring at people when he could get up at any point mm-hmm. but is giving himself a reason not to. Uh, but Hitchcock saw the measure of the film, and he worked with John Michael Hayes, with whom he had written um, a couple of scripts previously, and then... Turned it 12 years later, as the story is from 1942, into Rear Window in 1954. Interesting side note on uh, Cornell Woolrich. Um, He had a tough time in adulthood. Um, He was deeply closeted and very self-flagellating about it um, and became a recluse later in his life. Um, He wore his shoes too tight and got an infection on one of his feet and had to have a leg amputated. So he actually grew himself into the character uh, that he had written um, in Rear Window. Wow. So that's a bit of the backstory. Mm -hmm. Dark. Yeah, yeah. Um, But Hitchcock likes dark. He does like dark. He also likes irony. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's a a bingo for him. Um, so, um, uh, but uh, but uh, to end that, he would actually uh, have the nurses while he's in a wheelchair have him take him into the streets of New York City so he could watch people walk by and mm-hmm. things like that. So. I'm sure that didn't make anybody feel self conscious at all. <laughs> 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 Everyone would walk by and be like, "That short story is too on the nose." <laughs> uh, but like most things, meta. Um, films about films can be really annoying or really fascinating. And Hitchcock does meta incredibly well. And for a short story about voyeurism, um, boring to read. I want to see it. Like, that's mm-hmm. the whole point. And so um, Hitchcock, in adapting it, is able to pull out the scopophilia that's built into the short story in very filmic ways and have it be reflexive in a way that the short story doesn't really get to but obviously is aware of. And Hitchcock plays with that really intelligently um, and loads it with a lot of Freudian elements that you can see mm-hmm. are also very active um, in the story of uh, written by a closeted man who's like <laughs> refuses to get out of a wheelchair. <laughs> like, uh, it's who, as good as uses, that can get. And I uses think, a right? telescope, <laughs> a protracted telescope to see the world. Um so um, the other thing that's really neat about Rear Window is that the space on the set um, is used intelligently. So mm-hmm. uh, it is something where you both feel incredibly confined uh, because of feeling like you are trapped in the apartment. Um, 
yet also there's an openness to the city and that distance between mm-hmm. people. And being able to physically collapse that space on state or on screen is something that you could only you'd mm-hmm. have to take out mm-hmm. of text. Yeah, I mean, except for that creep Raymond Burr. I mean, you've got like some cool people like living in your apartment complex, right? Right. Well, it only <laughs> takes one to ruin an apartment complex. Obviously, <laughs> now, I think it's really good at probably. It sounds like better than the novel in creating this sense of dread. Um, like, I mean, you feel this weird. You know, sense of dread in the film. I haven't seen it, in a but while, it's also but. like it's it's also kind of pretty. I mean, because you've got Grace Kelly kind of flowing in, True. and she looks incredible, and and color, and, yeah, and, and yeah, exactly, and color, and and wide screen, and, and so there's a lot right. of artifice, right? Purposely so, um, but uh, yeah, that gets lost, uh, or I mean, it's an addition that film's able to give this very mm-hmm. interesting story. Mm-hmm. So and it always it I, it always strikes me whenever we get a chance to show it here. How, how if you it's a great movie to see with an audience because when Grace Kelly goes into when Grace Kelly's character goes into Raymond Burr's apartment mm-hmm. and that whole scene plays mm-hmm. out you get this kind of audible response like, from the oh. audience that's just it's you know it's a share you don't get that at the movies as much anymore no so to see people kind of you know take it in collectively it just works it still works mm-hmm. which is great yeah so now whatever sixty five almost years later yeah. You would think people would be like, oh, that's too, you know, that's something that's of its moment. But no, it just, it totally. It's also about the perpetual interest people have in being nosy. Mm-hmm. I mean, so mm-hmm. I think everybody can relate to that. I mean, yeah, we're, we're yeah. nosy in multiple formats and media yep. platforms, but <clears throat> they're basically nosy. And that's how it kind of starts. And it makes that's someone right. bop you on the nose about being nosy. Right. In a big um, way. Is, uh, right. Like you're going to get, that's going to come back <laughs> to you in a bad way. Yeah. And it ultimately yeah. it'll work out okay, but. Yeah. It's going to be a little painful. Mm-hmm. Well, you're going to get tense for a while. So Good so that's, uh, I, I think that, you know, I mean, obviously Hitchcock gets his due. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that one in particular, going from the source material, and then have someone be like, oh, this needs to be a movie. This mm-hmm. doesn't need to be a short story. It's It really, it zings. So my first, um, the first movie I had on my list is one I just thought was an interesting process of adaptation. And it's a great film, uh, which is um, Carol Reed's uh, The Third Man. Um, which was conceived of, so it's based on a screenplay by uh, Graham Greene. And what was interesting is that they talked about the idea of making the film. And what Greene did is he decided to go write a novella to kind of work out the story and kind of publish the novella and then developed a screenplay based on the novella. So, um, so it's kind of 2001 y. Is that is that what yeah. happened with it that's did. yeah Clark with our yeah that, so yeah. that's so I did you know just kind of thinking about how that when you actually this is a process of adaptation when you know that the end result is ultimately going to be something that's turned into a film mm-hmm. um, it's not quite you know novelization which is a di- you know which is kind of trying to write something after you know what it looks like um, but to try to come up with the care the you know the the schematics the characters all that. so rereading it do you feel like it had a cinematic quality already. Uh, well, I, did, I have to it. confess, I didn't get a chance to reread it. Um, I've, I've read it a long time ago, but um, you know what I what I in looking back to it and kind of uh, kind of researching it and kind of trying to remember what happens. It's it's there's a lot of changes, and interestingly, Carol Reed kind of takes the story in a much darker direction. Um, so um, in terms of you know the the characters who were in the film, um, they were both uh, they were both British in the in the novel novella, and then Americans the Harry Lyme and the 
Harry Lyme and Holly Martins. Harry Lyme played by Orson Welles. Holly Martins played by uh, Joseph Cotton, who they originally wanted to get Jimmy Stewart for it. And I guess he was he wasn't busy. Available, so and and actually Reed really wanted to get Joseph Cotton. I love Joseph Cotton and I think he's he's great in this film in part because the fact that he's it's an American character and not a British character and he's he's really wishy-washy. He kind of plays against uh, a lot of the type of, you know, kind of what the American protagonist would be in this film. I I showed it to a group of students this year and they were really struck by the fact that he's not he's not a much stronger presence. Orson Welles's character Harry Lyme is a much more interesting character and it's probably because Orson Welles, you know, he really plays it up and uh, you know, draws on what makes him really interesting as an actor. Um, it was always assumed that Wells actually had a hand in directing it because it looks so much like an Orson Welles film, but he actually, he didn't really mm-hmm. have much, much to do with it. In fact, he was a big pain in the neck while they were shooting it. He had to, um, he wouldn't come to the set. And so they had to recreate a lot of the pieces just to uh, accommodate his schedule. But um, so um, among the things that change is that, um, so you have this, the shift of uh, nationality, um, the I the I think the 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 contextualization of the war and the post-war period, which which is a real strength of the film, um, is is much more developed in the film version. Um, uh, although that was interestingly cut from the original U.S. release, Selznick uh, Selznick was the producer on it, and he cut out the whole prologue of the film, which kind of gave you the context of what life in Vienna was like after the war. Um, but in the, in the restored version, you can see that. Um, and then the ending of the film, spoiler alert, um, is, you know, one of the things that's always struck people about the ending of the film is this, uh, is that it doesn't give you the sort of romantic reunion that you mm-hmm. anticipate, uh, between, um, uh, Holly and I think it's Anna is the female, uh, character, female lead in it. And, um, in the book that was actually, they, they do actually find a way to resolve that. So Reed wanted to make it a much darker piece, um, than what the book had originally laid out, so I think that was interesting. And an unusual choice, probably. Right, yeah. right. especially choice. for, you know, something that Selznick was producing, which you would... Oh, and Carol Reed's of. directing. I mean, right. I don't think of him as being a... Oh, at that stage, Carol mm-hmm. Reed's doing some pretty edgy stuff. You've got stuff like um, The Fallen Idol. And, oh, right. Um, the Irish film, which I'm, I'm blanking on with James Mason. Um, blanking on the title, but you can IMDb it. Um, anyway, the uh, so I think I just think it's an it, it just an, a curious case of... You know, something that comes out of a, just a very different process of, of adaptation. So what do you have next for us, Paulette? Second, um, this was, again, I, I had to cut out things, and Blade Runner would have been my second choice, and it's a brilliant second mm-hmm. choice. But I went with the Dead Zone to kind mm-hmm. of do something different. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, Dead Zone is a movie I rediscovered last year. I was home during the winter, sad winter That's alone a good winter movie. on my yeah. couch. It's a very good winter movie. It's a very good winter movie, and my dog and I are sitting there. And anyway, it sounds really pathetic. So let me let me back up from yeah. this <laughs> and just say I was also tired. I'm sitting on my we couch. Like, we like the anecdotes. Yes, and I pulled up um, Amazon, which you where you can stream things, and I'm Amazon Prime, and you know there are a bunch of things you can stream for free. And Dead Zone popped up. And I was like, wow, I haven't seen that in a while. And I put it, and I was like, I re-loved, I remember re-loving the film. Mm-hmm. And I'd read the story, the Stephen, it's based on a Stephen King novel from um, late 70s, early 80s. And I remembered liking the story and it being very different. It's actually, Dead Zone's actually a very long Stephen King novel. Is it a long one? Kind of long. Yeah. 
And when the, you would see his stuff in your public library, it was the big hardcover. Yeah, it's a big okay. hardcover. It's a long story, and that's actually relevant I because read it. I just can't remember. Yeah, it, the character in the Dead Zone is written somewhat like the Christopher Walken character, who I'll talk about in a minute in the film. Um, his journey to becoming this odd um, being, human being who can see the future and also ultimately help control it. Um, the the reasons for that happening are different than in the film. And his life goes through several iterations um, in the film. And, and in the end is quite different. And like you were just saying about the third man, um, the end that they chose was actually a, l- a little darker mm-hmm. than even in the Stephen King. And Stephen King can be very dark. But Stephen King, the one thing that's um, dark that's, yeah, um, the and Maine and all of that, the one thing that's really interesting about it um, in terms of the adaptation piece is that this is a story, this is a movie that King said actually works better than the narrative of, of his own book. And that's kind that's of rare. That's rare for him to endorse something. It is. Like um, although what was the, although he, he spoke positively about it. Yeah, he endorses or like the he endorses the ones that you wouldn't expect, like the TV miniseries. Yeah, like I think writers are interesting. I read his book yeah. a couple of years ago on writing, and it's really interesting the process for him of writing and being a horror. And he, it makes it sound like he's not that great a writer. He right. just kept going at it and at it and at it. But one could say that that this novel, I enjoyed it, but it is very long and the character's different. But Christopher Walken to me. This is his heyday. It's the early mm-hmm, 80s. The film mm-hmm. came out in 1983. Yeah, he was Set great. Set in Maine. There's something, and I hope Christopher Walken, you at some point listen to this podcast. I don't know how oh, we're going to get listening. it to oh, you. Yeah, he's he's in. He's Thank in. you. Because you are, you're beautiful. He's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I mean it in pretty much every way. Um, Martin Sheen is definitely listening. Okay, thank you. Because he's a big Notre Dame guy. You know? Yes, well, Martin <laughs> can get the fan. message to Christopher yeah, yeah, yeah. for so my benefit. But in any case, it's a film that really works. And so, again, I rediscovered this last year in the winter. And it's a triptych. Um, this is a David Cronenberg film, mm-hmm. so it's already going to be interesting. This is kind of him and his heyday. That's right, it's Cronenberg. I always confuse. I was, it's Carpenter did Christine. Right, That's I'm sorry, we might have talked yeah, about this, yeah, but yeah, I meant yeah, David no, Cronenberg. No, no, you're right, you're right, of course. And Cronenberg course. does interesting things, and he doesn't mind getting gory and a little dark, right. as we know. Right. Um, but the triptych thing really, really, really works in this film, and there's something, the everyman quality that Christopher Brocken brings in a much more interesting way, even than the Stephen King does in the novel mm-hmm. is really great. So basically the 30-second the version is that the story is this really ordinary, nice guy who's a good teacher in a main high school, has a girlfriend, and he's happy. Um, they haven't even consummated their relationship. Mm-hmm. That's just how good a guy he is, right? Mm-hmm. And we see this whole scene with him in the beginning where they're going to kiss goodnight, and she's like, do you want to come in? And he's like, we'll wait, and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, and then he yeah. gets in this whole— It sense that Anthony Michael Hall would play it. At some point. I oh, don't right, want to talk show. about reserializations. <laughs> okay. I don't know why that happened. I don't know why that I happened. I forgot about that. I don't know why that yeah, had to happen. He was affordable. But, oh, oh, wow. We're, no, we was, went there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. We went there. It's like I could digress. But in any case, he's a nice guy. Gets into this accident, which is yeah. already different from the book. In the book, you don't know what the source of this um, of this power that he has, yeah. but in the in the um, film, he gets into an accident. He gets into he's in a coma for years. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's interesting is that there's a little bit of a of a predilection of what's going to happen because he and his girlfriend are like at the amusement park, and he has this weird headache. And so you you like they touch on Stephen King a little bit there, but then they go in their own direction. So there's that 
Christopher Walken, and then post-accident, post-coma, and he wakes up and he has all of these weird visions, and he's amazing, Christopher Walken, Mm -hmm. and his parents, and then there's, like, stuff that happens. And then the third is Martin Sheen, who is, I, this is, it is the weirdest set of touchstones on Mm -hmm. our current political situation. Martin Sheen plays this overzealous politician who is up for becoming like the 10 I don't know he's like going to be senator or congressman right, or something right. and Walken's character has this vision of him ultimately becoming president and having his finger on the button yeah and he's and so, like a white nationalist or and something, he's a white he? nationalist <laughs> and he's talks about America being great again and I mean literally if you watch the film yeah okay yes it's a Stephen King story and whatever it's amazing that way but in any yeah. case um Walken brings this pathos to the character that's really unbelievable. Even the lost relationship he has with the Brooke Adams character, mm-hmm. you feel it. And and they take the story, they take this kind of coolish King story and make it something different and special. Even the way, like there's a great scene, like the greatest scene in the film where Christopher Walken is tutoring. He's a teacher. So he's tutoring this kid and the kid is a really wealthy kid and he's, he grabs, he's hugging him because anyway, you have to see the film and he sees this vision of the kid drowning with his hockey oh, yeah. troop and, and he's in the house and what is the actor? And I'm blanking on his name. He's fantastic. Any case, he goes, you know, the son, I'm going to do this. We're going to go in the league and he goes yeah. and he takes his cane and he does a Christopher Walken yeah. and he slams on the table and goes, the ice is gonna break, <laughs> and you're like you're totally in the moment yeah, with yeah, him. And yeah. Christopher Walken and what they do with the triptych kind of structure makes this King novel something really special and different, and you're not expecting it. So anyway, and it good, gets gory and weird. So they it, referenced it. it they did a Saturday Night Live skit based on that, which was pretty. The funny. ice <laughs> is gonna break. <laughs> it's no, awesome. They did, no, but it's when awesome. he was on when one of his early Saturday Night Live appearances, he plays like this. <laughs> it's all set in an office, and right. he keeps like touching people's arms. But he picks up on like this really trivial detail, like you're gonna get a paper cut, and it's really gonna hurt. <laughs> That's awesome. And even that was probably unbelievably cool. It was pretty funny. Yeah, pretty, but it's also it like goes to the the narrative is, is pretty. It works. Works it in works. a lot of different contexts. It works. It works. So great. Good one. Good one. Good. I'm going to go back to that. Hopefully it's still on Prime. Hopefully they haven't dropped. Yeah, but now you have to pay for it. It was just ah, that week. And I did. And damn. you know what? I paid for it. This is, you talk about reserializations and rewatching binge yeah. stuff. I watched it. I've watched it six more times. So. Damn. Wow. I do that. <laughs> I do that. Moving on. <laughs> All right. <laughs> That's good. That's good. All right. So, Ricky, what's number two for you? Uh, my second one is um, uh, the say it, Ricky. Who framed? I say it, Roger what? Rabbit. Say it. Ah, that was that's a big one for me. Question mark. Question mark. It's a question mark of why a, this would be on the list, or a yeah. question mark oh. because there's a question mark at the end. Um, of the Robert. <laughs> uh, hello, Robert Zemeckis. Thank you very much. Hello. I'm kidding. Mm-hmm. It's all about <laughs> the bunny. Zemeckis it's fan. all about. It's all about her. Okay. Uh, well, um, this is an example of, um, I don't know how many of you, well, actually Rear Window as well, where I watch the film and then go back and read the book, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um, which is, uh, I think most people are familiar, at least in, uh, like standard viewing practices. Oh, I read the, I read Jurassic Park because it's a very popular mm-hmm. book and then it was made into a movie. So this is the reverse process for me. And the book is from 1981, 
Um, and so earlier in the decade, and the title is Who Censored Roger Rabbit? Not by Dick Wolf or Philip K. Dick, but by Philip K. Wolf. <laughs> so it's like a, a triangle. It's kind of awesome. A litigious Philip K. Wolf <laughs> um, who uh, would come back and uh, try and sue Disney down the line. Uh, but it's this is an example where you have the film so heavily read in your mind that when you go back and read the book, it's very uncomfortable, even though the two, as I'll discuss, are widely divergent. But even the book cover uh, has like a proto Roger Rabbit on it, which is like seeing the original Simpsons drawings. It's a little disconcerting. Mm-hmm. Very disconcerting. <laughs> and very like Howard the Duck, too. Just like, uh, not, it's too three dimensional in a way. Like it's, it's, uh, it's very awkward to look at. Um, the big difference, or one of the main differences, between the two is that the book doesn't address animation, but rather comic strips. So Roger Rabbit is a comic strip character um, who has uh, been killed. Um, And in this world, you're able to create ephemeral versions of yourself, drawings of yourself. So essentially a ghost of Roger Rabbit Um, that has spawned off and then they fade away after like three days or something is the Roger Rabbit that we've seen. So instead of being framed, he's censored. Who censored Roger? He's killed. Um, And reading the book, I mean, I don't care about Andy Cap or Dick Trace or whatever, the Cats and Moyer or whatever they are. You know, like Popeye, those old comic strips don't, don't I don't have the references and it's laced with those. So if you're a f- fan of old timey comic strips, you'd probably like the. When was it written? Like the, when was 81. It? 81. Okay. Though it sounds, Ricky, like that element of the story, the censorship piece and disappearing, that sounds actually really, as an idea, really fascinating. Sounds good cool. for a theory class. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah good yeah. device. Disappearance. Disappearance <laughs> device. in film. That's kind of a. Cool and concept. it's uh, why the who tunes are, by the mm-hmm. way. So like Roger Rabbit, the way. The way comic strips are made, real tunes pose, and then they take pictures. Mm-hmm. And so that's how a comic strip is created. Oh, okay. So that's what, cool. that's how tunes are. Now, why tunes exist, how it came to be, like, not really addressed. Mm-hmm. Um, but Eddie, the, the, private, uh, the, the private detective, uh, who played by Bob Haskins in the, the movie, mm-hmm. is in it. Um, and is led around in a very different kind of murder mystery, in part because when he's meeting Jessica Rabbit, he's meeting a widow. Mm-hmm. He's not meeting, you know. He's meeting like, a very voluptuous, well-endowed widow. Jessica Rabbit? Yes. Yeah. Um, so oh. is, she, is, she the same, is she the same idea in... What do you what do you what do you think? I maybe I have the wrong character. Jessica Rabbit. Yeah, Jessica Rabbit. Yeah, she's but she's not a rabbit. She's she's yeah, she's a she's a she's a bombshell from the forties in the film. Yeah, it's a bit much. Yeah, I remember being a lot. Yeah, Um, (laughs) but is she the same in the? Is she similar in the? She plays out very similarly there. Mm -hmm. Um, And she actually, I think there are very limited convergences. The um, I remember the I'm not bad. I was drawn this way. Yes, that's awesome. Actually, from the book, I think that's like one of the only things that's like the same. Uh, but uh, the the Toontown as and tunes as a race metaphor 
is much more salient in the novel. Mm-hmm. That I mean, not the you can't see it in the movie. It's pretty yeah. I don't think it. Yeah, I don't think it translated at all. Yeah, <laughs> that aspect did not translate at all. Yeah. But the but it's much. Uh, but the the ghettoization, the minstrel qualities, the fact that creators or colonizers have created exaggerated personas for these people are is all very much in the novel. Um, so when Disney. Um, through Touchstone, acquired rights to it. Uh, they saw it as an opportunity to jumpstart uh, flagging animated studios. Um, and they did their best to wash out the source material. Um, but this is like, it's hard. As you guys talked about stuff like going dark. Mm-hmm. Dark going light's hard because there always are going to be mm-hmm. those shadows. <laughs> And you can see that in Roger Rabbit mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Uh, but Jeffrey Price and Peter Seaman are the two ad- who adapted it for Zemeckis. Uh, not that, I mean, they made Wild Wild West and Doc Hollywood. Like, these aren't. Both really amazing films that yeah. didn't appear on anybody's list. <laughs> not on my list. The scripts, <laughs> no. the scripts you go no. back to. Um, but the film Never noir is, stays in place only, again, like We're Window. By opting out of comic strips, which work in text, even though it wasn't um, an illustrated novel, uh, going to animation and using that is what gives so much zip to the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that it has that, you know how war movies could be NC-17, but a lot of times we give them prestige, so it's R. The animated quality, I think, takes a film that mm-hmm. should be solidly PG-13 and mm-hmm. pushes it down to PG. I remember my mom going to the movie because I wanted to see it and giving it a check and then saying, okay, you can go. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I had the uh, Common Sense Media uh, has on their website in the their sound. Uh, deceptively <laughs> mature movie mixes fun with guns and innuendo. <laughs> wow. Is, but it is what accurate. it is. That's accurate. Yeah. It is what yeah. it is. Uh, but that's something when you're a kid to get to see like something Bugsy Malone-esque, something that is approachable for you or parents are going to let you see even though you're <laughs> not allowed to see it. Previous podcast callback. Yes, that's <laughs> um, right. <laughs> that's going to be uh, very exciting. And the fact that they ended up censoring Roger Rabbit in order to make the movie is something that is mm-hmm. itself kind of uh, telling. I think also it's a lot more interesting than Howard the Duck, but that's not saying much. <laughs> it's, it's <laughs> Howard the. I mean, there's just nothing in Howard the Duck. Is there? Is there? I, I don't know. It's a lot I, of you just feel awkward. It is. Yeah. It does feel awkward. Yeah. It's a lot of awkward. Yeah. Maybe there's too much not, focus on. Yeah, it's not anatomical correctness. And, and like, things. and well, and even like they've tried. Like that's a film where you, people have tried to turn it into like a midnight movie, as something to laugh at, and it's right. just it's, it's boring. Just, it's boring. It's just not. There's not nothing there. There's nothing. Although there. I understand that he made a cameo appearance in Guardians of the Galaxy. Oh yes, he does. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and I, they were supposedly talking about trying to revive it. But I don't think let it, it die. Yeah. Well, on the reviving, so uh, or serialization or whatnot. What's interesting is uh, Philip K. Woof, the author, after the film, um, was like, "Oh, actually, people like my book," <laughs> uh, and he like essentially did another kind of noirish thing, which is like, "Oh." 
cartoons have dreams, mm-hmm. and sometimes that's what happened. And now we're in a different world, and guess what? It's actually the world of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Oh, God. <laughs> wow, that seems so a little we, self-referential. Yeah. But, well, it's also like, okay, Time you to... didn't like my book. You liked that movie. I'm, Here we go. And so I'm going to capitalize. I'm going to give you that go. movie. Yeah, makes sense. Okay, well, um, so my second uh, film that I'm going to talk about um, I think it's third on the list that I that I gave you guys, but is a film from 1991, uh, and it's uh, Alan Parker's adaptation of Roddy Doyle's The Commitments. And um, when I was originally thinking about this, I wanted to talk about Roddy Doyle's full Barrytown trilogy um, because I really... I, I like the later films, actually, in the trilogy. The Snapper is probably my favorite of those uh, of those uh, films. Um and, and I actually have a, a soft spot for the van, which is considered kind of the least of the films. Um, but when I actually went back and, and looked at uh, Doyle's text, what I realized is, you know, those films are actually fairly faithful to um, the original text. So there's not really, uh, I mean, it's, you know, they're, they're good adaptations, but there's not something really kind of striking about ones. them. Well, I mean, it, it's not, yeah, I mean, it's close. It's just, they just, they're, they're, they're loyal, they're faithful, they capture the spirit of it. And then interestingly, directed by Stephen Frears, who as we were looking at, you know, uh, films and filmmakers, partly one thing actually going back to your choice, Ricky, is uh, Zemeckis, his thing now seems to be is that he's taking uh, documentaries and turning them into film adaptations because he did the he did Man on a Wire and now he's this this film that's coming out this year with Steve Carell is is a, a version of uh, Marwin Call I've heard so of this, yeah. that's like his his thing but Stephen Frears if you actually look at you know arguably like one of the greatest director of adaptations and also interestingly not doesn't write most of the films that he directs um, so. Uh, so he usually works well with other people's material. It's just to kind of give Stephen Frears a little shout out for that. But we're going to put him aside and talk about Alan Parker, who's a director I'm less uh, excited about in terms of his overall career. But I think this was one of his uh, one of his better moments, which is uh, the commitments. And you know, the obvious thing to say about the commitments is while it takes. Um, it is somewhat faithful to the original material in terms of, um, you know, using a lot of the a lot of the text that you read in the film, which is mostly dialogue, and it's mostly dialogue mm-hmm. in this very working class Irish dialect. Mm-hmm. Um, that that actually goes into the film. Um, what makes the commitments, you know, such a memorable film is the the performances, the music performances. Mm-hmm. Because it's really got a kind of wonderful energy. And I think that's actually Alan Parker's greatest strength is when he's kind of working more in kind of music video mode. Flashdance is a terrible film, but it's <laughs> no, but it works really? as a but as a music video, it's yeah, it's you know, it's, it's great it's great looking, you know. So it's it has a certain kind of style to it. Um fame, you know, fame's better than Flashdance, but um but works better in mm-hmm. its, you know, and it's with its musical numbers. So, um, so yeah, so I just thought this was an interesting one to just kind of reference in, in terms of how, you know, because the, they talk about, uh, in, interestingly, in the, in the book, Doyle talks about certain songs and he'll actually, he'll identify, you know, he actually uses lyrics from the songs to kind of carry you through certain passages, but it just doesn't kind of work in the same way as hearing these characters sing those songs. And, Although that's become, maybe that was a moment in which that 
kind of stylistic device was being used more. Maybe. I mean, Stephen King uses, I mean, that's, that's what I remember loving about Stephen King. One of the things, first of all, was the, you know, the, uh, kind of, uh, provinciality of New England, mm-hmm. uh, which you can't get more provincial than Maine. You cannot um, get more provincial than Maine. Buzzing in Northwest yeah. Iowa. <laughs> um, but we're talking, but Iowa. then, but, but it was also his reference to music. It was always, you know, that, that it, this is, the, these are cool books because he's referencing rock songs and I know the lyrics to these rock right. songs. Right. So it actually makes it much more readable. So, um, yeah, so when you get that, and also within the within Roddy Doyle's text, when you're getting you know this Irish, this very specific Irish dialect broken up by you know lyrics from old soul songs that you can you mm-hmm. know that just have a very different style to them, it kind of they they play off each other well. It's just a different kind of experience than actually seeing these characters. Mm-hmm. You, you move know, into it, it you song. move with it. Yeah, so you can't. So it's just I, another kind of interesting kind of process of adaptation. It's neat. Plays out. Uh, what, Paulette, what is last your choice. last choice? So, I mean, you know, we're talking about adaptations. This is a kind of different one. It's Logan, mm-hmm. which was a 2017 film. So it came out last year. Um, and is, as most people I think probably remember, um, it is, it's a Wolverine film and Wolverine is of course part of the X-Men and there've been right. many X-Film films at X-Men films at this point. This is the 10th, I believe. Mm -hmm. And the third, that's just about Wolverine, the Wolverine character. And it's dark. It's beyond dark. And I know, Ted, I remember last year us having this conversation about the goriness of the film um, being balanced by some of these other larger themes. And I remember us talking about this because I think if you're part of that universe, the X-Men universe, the now huge comic book universe, there's a level of violence... um, and gore that's just sort of embedded. Well, there's um, violence, but, but there's not necessarily gore. Yeah, True. violence. True, but the Wolverine character has always been gory because yeah. he gores people quite literally. So he's the exception in that world. I think but even within the X-Men films, it's never been yeah. as graphic or it's, you know what I mean? The second Wolverine was was pretty... And the well, in the Wolverine actually. story, in the Wolverine. In the Wolverine. Yeah, so I'm thinking Wolverine, of the X-Men true. films. X-Men, yes. And I soften it. Right, and, and to be very honest with you, I mean, the reason this was interesting to me is because one... Even though back in my my youth, youth, I had a comic book collection, which of course now would have netted me lots of money. I kind of I liked the idea of comic books and the stories. I didn't love the process of reading comics like most of the guys in my class who liked. I love speculative things, and I liked the filmic, cinematic, and you know just reading that stuff didn't really work for me as much. So I didn't collect comic books for very long. But this is part of a darker series for X Men, um, and it it it's based on um, Old Man Logan by right. Mark Miller, um, and it comes from 2008, and it's part of the Fantastic Four universe that has aged aged and aged superheroes. Mm-hmm. So when I heard um, the film, I wanted to see it because Hugh Jackman's in it, and he's awesome, and he takes Wolverine to this unbelievable length. Mm-hmm. And whatever you think about Hugh Jackman, whatever you think about the X-Men, he always brings 110%. It's a joy to watch him, and I don't just mean physically. Yeah. Um, he's just that committed. I was like, I'm going to go see this, but the reviews that were coming back were unbelievable. And when I saw the film, I totally got it. I think mm-hmm. um, they they took it, uh, director took it in a direction you're not anticipating, and it actually mostly is dedicated, obviously, to aging um, to seeing these characters that have these unbelievable powers that are beyond, beyond the human reduced to an unbelievably human scale mm-hmm. and actually mm-hmm. suffer things like Alzheimer's and dementia 
and arthritis. And I mean, it's right. it took the X-Men. I, I don't particularly care for the X-Men. I don't. It's like a perpetual B movie to me. Yeah. Be isn't like if you had to grade it, um, but the Wolverine stuff has always been more interesting because he's a more interesting character, and this was really it went to an, a place that I don't even think the 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 comics did in terms of what they did with this character, and mm-hmm. it matched the story pretty much yeah. what happens to him. Um, well, it's a great use of Hugh Jackman too. It's I mean, a just great that, use you know, of because him. he's always. I mean, he's always stood out as somebody who physically commits to the role. Physically the commits, that, but yeah. he also he's also going on playing this role for 20 years. Right. I mean, he's done it 17, 18 years, but he's the pathos he's able to, um, to really generate here Mm -hmm. and seeing Patrick Stewart as a man with dementia. It's, I have to say, I mean, I know this sounds weird because it's an X-Men movie and whatever. I mean, you have to think if you've ever had a person in your life that's suffered that kind of thing Mm -hmm. They totally play that, and it's not just a little part of the film. It's the whole film is about the responsibility, the responsibility, yeah, yeah. and what it actually looks like to have been yeah. this human being who's now um, struck with with the the problems and the issues that come with dementia, aging, and then of course within this larger framework of the the story with the X Men and him being able to do all these superhuman feats, and having been him confronting a character that was him twenty or thirty years before, and him not actually being able to win this time, I. I I have to say everyone that I knew who saw the film, who may have been speculative fiction people or maybe not, walked away having cried in the, in the film. Oh, it's, yeah. I, it was just a kind of unbelievable movie that I, I think took that comic book genre to an unbelievable level. So an adaptation that was like unexpectedly successful. The screenplay got a nom- got an Oscar. Nom- it did. Mm-hmm. Yep. It, and it got an Oscar nom. So and of course, Hugh Jackman you don't is get great. For that. yeah. That's, yeah, that's that's rare. That's, I also that, hope that, uh, he's listening. To this, that, but. Yeah, well, maybe he's gonna, you know, he's gonna kind of give you a shout out on Twitter or something. I love <laughs> that. Does he use Twitter? <laughs> we'll find out. We'll find out. Great, lovely. Did you watch the Logan Noir? Did you catch the black and white version? As well? I have not. I should. Yeah. I've heard we it's showed, we also showed it good. Here. It's. I, I don't think it's good. necessary. I mean, I think it's. We we showed it here in the cinema. I did just not to, know that. We did because we did a we did a weekend where we showed that plus the Mad Max in black and white. I think I was not here. Yeah. So it was. I, I don't. I mean, I think it's it's. In some it ways, it's it's happen. a little it's a little much. I mean, it's a little you know we're trying to prove that these are uh, genre films that have substance, so right. we have to try to do this with right. them. Um, and you know, I mean, Mad Max is is the one to make the better case for because True. Logan isn't necessarily regarded for its cinematography. No, I think what you're talking about is more in the script. It's the narrative and the, perf- and the performances. Right. Um, but the but with Mad Max, because it was the thing about Mad Max was how it looked. So right. does that work better? It just seems like it was, you know, it's this kind of gimmicky moment of let's yeah, let's try to, to give gravitas to these right. genre that films. didn't need to happen. I think another thing that we could have added to this list is Sin City, which yeah. would have been. I also thought As about Sin City. I've actually never seen Sin City. So it is a ama- it's an amazing comment. experience, but yeah. I'll just leave it there. But okay. I was I watched Sin City when I was in the theater and came out to the news that Pope John Paul II had died. <laughs> And then it's on, because you sinned on Drudge, well, on Drudge or something. I In remember the they having the article like America watches filth while Pope passes away. Oh no, you were part of that. Uh-huh. Sorry, well, like, you're part of that. Sorry, Pope. Sorry. There we go. He couldn't take it. I mean, the film it goes weird places. That oh. story very dark. So uh, my last film, um, rounding out with something um, a little bit lighter. 
uh, is Candyman. <laughs> <laughs> we have a lot. Of I'm problems. not. Don't say it five times in a row. We'll all be safe. Uh, in the book, you could do it all you want. Because oh, that's really? not part of the book. Or by book, I mean, actually, a short story. Uh, it's part of the Books of Blood anthology by Clive Barker, and it's Clive written Barker, in the back mid-90s. In the day. Wow. Mid-90s. Back in the day. Prolific. Yeah, he I did mean, a lot. It was a six-volume anthology. And uh, so Candyman is based off a short story entitled The Forbidden, um, which I think came from book five. Um, and uh, because it's a short story um, and Candyman uh, as a film, as a horror film, has to deliver certain things in the slasher genre they are going to be expected when it comes out in 1992, uh, there's deviations. But what makes it really interesting for me is the geographical shift. So mm-hmm. huge. Uh, working with mm-hmm. um, a short story that is originally set and I actually don't know if they are real uh, council estates or just kind of made-up ones uh, in Liverpool, although I would never read it. I, it doesn't read Liverpool to me, but that's where it's set. And shifting it to Cabrini Green uh, in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, it was written and directed by Bernard Rose, who's also British, but he gets the idea of how to use... Um, how to use Chicago, uh, even if in a really superficial way, to move that storyline along. Also, you get a short story where it is strictly about class, and you shift it to America, where Candyman is very much at the intersection Mm -hmm. of class and race. Mm -hmm. Um, So that adds another level to it as well. Um, but on the slasher side of things, so Candyman is a film that's uneven in a lot of ways. Um, mm-hmm. you have a, uh, well, kind of like a Stephen King type author. Um, uh, and, uh, yet you have a Philip Glass score. Kind of unbelievable. Which, an unbelievable score. That, that could be an any movie, right? To, could it be any to. movie? It could be, it could be in, um... Like anything in the Middle Ages, yeah. <laughs> Again, there's there's something very chorale about it and Gregor, uh, Gregorian um, that moves it along um, and sets uh, that keep because he keeps returning to themes. Believe it or not, Philip, Philip Glass, Glass never heard of that. <laughs> he doesn't do that very often. No. No. <laughs> but that, but like. Um, uh, like Halloween, like a John Carpenter score. Like, you keep going back to a theme so you know, like, exactly where you're heading in, in the script. Uh, but the script needed to protract in terms of characters uh, because you have to kill them off and you need you need dead bodies. And that's not what you get in the short story. The short story um, uh, has uh, a very limited interaction with Candyman, um, who is obviously not... Uh, being punished for uh, sins of um, uh, for miscegenation or whatnot, mm-hmm. but it is uh, just some some creepy ghost like character, um, and it doesn't really come to explanation there. So the film also incorporates in Hammer's home uh, the fact that. Uh, sociologists should be careful about going into the field in a way that is lighter in the short story. And that's one thing that I've always loved about it. And the vehicle for that is urban legends. So urban legends 
not really in the short story. They talk about, well, people talk about this. In in the film, Virginia Madsen, Helen, is actively studying urban legends, hilariously so, if anyone's <laughs> ever gone to graduate school. Yeah. Uh, for her... Not feeling the, the method theory there. We'll prove that dissertation. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it's just, it's a real, it's a, it's a, it's a funny outside, inside look at the I university. Couldn't, I rewatched uh, parts of it and, and thinking like the scene where, where Tony Todd's character eventually. Uh-huh. Originally, they asked Eddie Murphy. Yeah, I saw that and he would have been hilarious. Yeah. In not the right ways. Because it's already a strange film, right? It's Empire Brooklyn type film. Yeah, it's already strange. But there's a scene where his character finally gets to Virginia Madsen and he has all the bees. Like he's a really grotesque, you Mm -hmm. know, he's bees because he's been um, lynched and they've, you know, this was back in the 19th century and he, you know, fell in love with a woman who's white and had a child. And so they they lynch him and, but they Mm -hmm. torture him. But the bees thing, I just couldn't get beyond it. So he had all these bees in his mouth, and then he kisses her, but she and she she has some bees, and then like it's just I mean there are things that like I get, it, I think it's not as clean, uh, like as beautiful, a, like a horror film as a Halloween where it's like you know it's really clean and paced well and all of that. But right. it's so much more interesting to watch in a way because of what's going on with the character. And Virginia Madsen's odd in it. Mm-hmm. Like, it works, but she's odd. Yeah, she's an odd grad student. She's in an in-between phase of her own career. Yeah, that maybe point that's where it. She's not, you know, she has like this 80s, she's she's something in the 80s, and then she comes back in sideways. So this right, is like right. Kind of stuck in the- but it's really gory. I've forgotten how gory it really is, mm-hmm. so. But, the, but um, as someone who... Uh, has ties to Notre Dame, which is situated near Chicago, and um, someone interested in going into the community. It's just a very good. It's, I think it's a as cautionary tales go. <laughs> I think it's an excellent cautionary tale for not only people in the social sciences, but people in the university who think they can go and just kind of take from the community and put it into a thesis. And call it candy man, candy man. Don't do man. it! Don't do it! <laughs> Browning Cinema will be haunted. No, no, sorry. No, we're interesting. We're safe. We're, we're safe. safe. We're safe. Okay, the we third stopped. time, we're and we're not in the bathroom with the mirror or whatever. Right, so you we're have fine. to you have to do all that stuff. Okay, fine. Great. All right. Um, so staying in uh, in our light. Uh, selections. <laughs> uh, my last uh, film that I'm going to discuss is American Psycho. Totally. You just trumped <laughs> both of us. Trumped us. So American Psycho, I believe it's 2000. That's when I That's when I remember seeing it. Um, directed by Mary Heron, who up until that point, uh, I think mostly had done music videos. She did the, um, did she do the Like a Prayer video? I think that's, oh. I think for Madonna, I think that was kind of one of her big ones. Um, up until that point. So she had most, and she had done, um, uh, I shot Andy Warhol was, uh, was kind of her indie film, big indie film in the nineties. Um, so American psycho, uh, which is an adaptation of a novel by Brett Easton Ellis, um, which I think was his third novel. The first was, uh, less than zero, which kind of made him mm-hmm. kind of an, it more boy. than zero. Uh, yeah, he was kind of, he and I remember he and Jay McInerney were like the it boys of like eighties new fiction. Um, and both, you know, wrote these books that just were turned into terrible movie adaptations. Um, and one of the things that he complained about in 
uh, about Lesson Zero is how it kind of whitewashed a lot of the uh, kind of uh, more kind of salacious aspects of his book and, and tried to, because it tried to portray the Andrew McCarthy uh, character as this kind of straight, you know, mm-hmm. uh, heroic protagonist, and, uh, which is not what he is in the book. Um, so, and then I forget what his second novel is, um, but then uh, uh, American Psycho, I believe it was his third. And it was a, a book that met with a lot of controversy at the time of its release because it's, you know, it, it tells the story of a serial killer who by day is, you know, some kind of you know, day trader or venture capitalist or just, you know, yuppie in New York yuppie, New York 80s yuppie uh, who... Um, spends his evenings, you know, kind of killing women in just the most grotesque fashion. Um, and the book gets into uh, kind of graphic detail when it describes those murders and it's, uh, and it feels gratuitous. It's not in, and not in the way that a gore film is gratuitous. Mm-hmm. It just, it's just something that doesn't work. And I can remember reading it and thinking like, Oh, this deserves the reputation that it has. So how do you turn that into an interesting film? And I think Mary Heron pulled it off really well. Um, she had just enough gratuity to make it work. No, because she well, partly because of the well, partly because of the yeah, the the tone of it. I think is is a big shift. Is that she's able to capture kind of a a comic tone to it that that he can't do in the book. Um, So it's Christian Bale playing Patrick Bateman. Brilliant. He's it's one of his it's one of his most interesting roles. and uh, it's a great cast. The, the supporting cast is actually really good. Chloe Sevigny mm-hmm. is in it. Um, Jared. Jared. Jared Leto. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Josh Lucas, I think, is in there. Um, a lot of people who would end up, you know, kind of, we'd see more of them, more of them elsewhere. Um, but uh, one of the things that I always found uh, amusing about the film is when he goes on his, uh, which I don't think is in the book, where he talks about uh, music. He talks about kind of what kind of music that he's interested in. And he does things like, like he listens to Huey Lewis in the news and he listens to, um, he, 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 he plays um, a Genesis awesome. album with, but it's a Phil Collins Genesis album. It's awesome. And he goes on this speech about how Genesis became a better band when Phil Collins, Collins took over it. as the lead singer. Yes. And what's hilarious to me personally is that if I were to watch that at age 15, I probably would have agreed with it. <laughs> <laughs> it was before my music taste kind of became Except more refined. Except then it became totally perverted because of the context in which you right, the right, music. Right, right, exactly. Like, oh. Well, I, would, I maybe would have addressed my the limitations of my taste <laughs> at that age because I really liked Huey Lewis in the news and I really liked <laughs> Phil <laughs> Collins' era <laughs> Genesis. <laughs> and, awesome. uh, so it's Watch pretty funny the way he works that into it. Um, but it's just, you know, I, I think partly because she had been working in, again, in music video, yay for music videos, she's able to just kind of give it a great look. It's got a great tone. Um, I think having a woman director kind of address, you know, these acts of violence probably plays into, you know, some of the more, you know, interesting aspects of representation. I also love the, you know, I mean, one of the points of the film, I think, is that you know, he's a serial killer and people don't believe he's capable of it because he's... Because of who he is. Because of this Wall Street, whatever, yeah. except in his day job, he's also preying on people. Right. So it's part right. of this whole culture they exist in, have money for, I mean, they have money to spare, right? Um, right. They have more money than God. And well, and, the, and it's the also the question of... Too big to fail type. That's or right. Too little to but it's also, right. there's also the suggestion that it's all in his head and that it's, True. you know, that, that, that's, you know, kind of a, a, a pretty harsh critique of... Right. You know, 80s capitalism. 
Yes. Um, yes. So it, it becomes interesting there. But I actually I haven't gone back to it. I, I should go back to it again. But I, I was worth just I, when we were thinking about this concept, this was the first uh, one that jumped to mind, just because I remember disliking the book so much. Yeah. And being really pleasantly surprised. Mm-hmm. Uh, with and Christian Bale's a little like a Hugh Jackman or whomever. I mean, he brings yeah. 110% to whatever. No he does. amateurs. No amateurs. No That's amateurs. The, well, amateur. and it would be because it, is it a is it a 99 release or is it 2000? I think it's 2000. I feel 2000. like it's spring of 2000. Right. It's right as I was, uh, all to say, it's the end of the Clinton years. Yep. And then I think part of the reason it went on ice is because we went. We had a tonal shift where it was like, yes, Wall Street again. Yeah. And then probably, I think it had a resurgence during Obama's presidency. Not that all of this is one for one. But right. it's a film that I mm-hmm. think will forever, as many cult Spawned films. a sequel. There you go, that too. <laughs> oh, which we'll didn't make cyclical. your list. We'll yeah. be cyclical. Yeah, and how, well, how, will it, how will it speak to us now? And I, probably well, a good, I think it'd be a good film to show. I think you year, all should actually. be showing yeah. it. I think given the climate of our country and yeah. the way that money has sort of dictated... Yeah. Life at the top, and I think in a ruthless fashion, I think there's yeah. something possible there. Well, and I—I mean, personally, I'd rather watch American Psycho than Wall Street. Oh God, like that's a better way <laughs> to get to good. good. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Right. Or Wall Street. What is it? Wall Street. Money too. never sleeps. Yeah. <laughs> what, what was that? <laughs> like it needed a second. I don't know. A second film. Know. Anyway, all right. Well, that's uh, that's what we have for adaptations. Hopefully, give you some inspiration to. Uh, uh, well, I guess you can't go to your video store anymore. It's not the year 2000. Family video. Family, you can still go to family video. <laughs> but it, I think it is a good uh, motivator to read the books right. or plays or short stories on which your favorite films were based. Um, I think it's good to work backwards. Yep. And even if you've heard that a film version of your favorite book is horrible and someone's like, it'll spoil it for you. Well, maybe don't do that because don't don't ruin the visions <laughs> in your head. But go back and read read stuff yeah. of the films you like because a lot of people don't do that, and it gives you an appreciation for like, oh, this is how films like have a tough time, and these are uh, these are the story uh, and narrative issues that they're confronted by being films, and gives some depth to their enjoyment. Yeah. The source material in all these films, maybe with the exception. Totally worth revisiting. Mm-hmm. Good stuff. Good stuff. Paulette, thank you for being here. Thank you. This was, I know I, I extended the time greatly with my rants and yeah, aggressions, that's okay. but what a great format to do this hey. in with two willing partners. We'll have you back. We'll have you back Appreciate soon. Appreciate it. Once we censor all the swears of the audience, <laughs> it'll only be 20 minutes. <laughs> Very good. All right. We'll see you next time.